welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 175. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So it's August, and we're doing something special this month. Something a little special for a special little person. H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft was a monumental figure in weird fiction written in the late 19th century before genre and stylistic conventions had been established and people started getting all uppity about what to call what. This year, to celebrate his birthday at the end of the month, we commissioned three of our favorite Drabblecast authors to write original fiction inspired thematically and possibly in plot points by the Lovecraft mythos. We asked them to keep Cthulhu submerged and not reference Lovecraft or his works directly, but to instead tangle with Lovecraftian themes such as the cumulative dread of the unknown, the monstrous indifference of space and time, the lunatics spiraling into the abyss, the inhuman universe buried under the thin skin of humankind, etc. Derivative, perhaps to some degree, but not drenched in pastiche. What we've got for you folks coming up in the next three weeks is original H.P. Lovecraft-inspired fiction commissioned by the Drabblecast, written by Tim Pratt, David Levine, and Jay Lake. I know, awesome, right? If you're a fan of Lovecraft, you might have just crapped your pants. If you're not, I wouldn't worry. I've read the stories and they're exactly what we were asking for, which is to say, the Lovecraft is mostly only there if you're looking for it. The talent, style, and imagination of Pratt, Levine, and Lake are what really take the stage. So that's starting up next week. This week, we are doing some Lovecraft work, and we're kicking it off with a tradition started in last year's Lovecraft tribute episode, with some excerpts from Lovecraft's sonnet cycle, The Fungi from Yugoth. It's the Drab of Poetry Corner, baby. The Fungi from Yugoth is a cycle of 36 sonnets that Lovecraft wrote between 1929 and 1930. The sequence of poems begins with a person who obtains an ancient book of esoteric knowledge, of course, that allows him to travel to parallel realities, alternate dimensions, and strange parts of the universe. I'm a luck dragon. I like children. For breakfast? (laughs) Never. It's truly terrifying stuff. Hope you enjoy. I held the book beneath my coat at pains to hide the thing from sight in such a place, hurrying through the ancient harbor lanes with often turning head and nervous pace. Dull, furtive windows in old, tottering brick peered at me oddly as I hastened by, and thinking what they sheltered, I grew sick for a redeeming glimpse of clean blue sky. No one had seen me take the thing, but still, a blank laugh echoed in my whirling head, and I could guess what nighted worlds of ill lurked in that volume I had coveted. The way grew strange, the walls alike and madding, and far behind me, unseen feet were padding. It was the city I had known before, 
The ancient leprous town where mongrel throngs Chant to strange gods and beat unhallowed gongs In crypts beneath foul alleys neath the shore. The rotting fish-eyed houses leered at me From where they leaned drunk and half-animate As edging through the filth I passed the gate To the black courtyard where other men might be. The dark walls closed me in, and loud I cursed that ever I had come to such a den, when suddenly a score of windows burst into wild light and swarmed with dancing men, mad soundless revels of the dragging dead, and not a corpse had either hands or head. They took me slumming where gaunt walls of brick bulge outward with a viscous stored-up evil, and twisted faces thronging foul and thick wink messages to alien god and devil. A million fires were blazing in the streets, and from flat roofs a furtive few would fly, bedraggled birds into the yawning sky, while hidden drums droned on with measured beats. I knew those fires were brewing monstrous things, and that those birds of space had been outside. I guessed to what dark planet's crypts they plied, and what they brought from Thog beneath their wings. The others laughed, till struck too mute to speak, by what they glimpsed in one bird's evil beak. That's what I'm talking about. For more of the fungi, check out last year's Lovecraft special in our archives at episode 126, where you'll also hear us produce HP's early story, Dagon, as well as a love ballad I wrote about looking for love in all the wrong places, namely, in Innsmouth. So we asked listeners on our forums and on Twitter which Lovecraft story they wanted to hear Drabblecast do this year, and we listened to your responses. We bring you The Outsider. Written between March and August 1921, this story was first published in Weird Tales, April 1926, one of their most popular to ever be published. So without further ado, we bring you The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft. Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon odd watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me. The dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those sear memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born, 
save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridor seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived in this place, but I cannot measure time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself, or anything alive but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of somebody mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying, like the castle. To me, there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strewed some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books, I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own. For although I had read of speech, I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark, mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books, and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forests. Once, I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser and the air more filled with brooding fear so that I ran frantically back lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So through endless twilights I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then. In the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last, I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live 
without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight, I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined, and deserted, and sinister with startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress, for climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, and a new chill as of haunted and venerable mold assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light, and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me, and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure, that I might peer out and above and try to judge the height I had once attained. All at once, after an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness, I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall could give, till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher, I knew that my climb was for the nuns ended since the slab was the trapdoor of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, no doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall hoped when necessary to pry it up again. Believing I was now at prodigious height, far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows that I might look upon for the first time the sky and the moon and stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed since all that I found were vast shelves of marble, bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected, and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then, unexpectedly, my hands came upon a doorway where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked, but with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known. For shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway was the radiant full moon which I had never before seen save in dreams and in vague visions that I dared not call memories. 
fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door, but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. Most demoniacal of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this, instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on the level through the grating, nothing less than the solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns, and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I knew not who I was, or what I was, or what my surroundings might be, though as I continued to stumble along I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch of that region of slabs and columns, and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across meadows, where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across a swift river, where crumbling mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar, yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows gorgeously ablaze with light and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company indeed, making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I had never, seemingly, heard human speech before and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brightly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, 
for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection, the room seemed deserted, but when I moved towards one of the alcoves, I thought I detected a presence there, a hint of motion beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly. And then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause, I beheld in full, frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had by its simple appearance changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and dissolution, the putrid, dripping eidolon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world. Yet to my horror, I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its moldy, disintegrating apparel, an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort towards flight. A backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes, bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close, though they were mercifully blurred, and showed the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock. I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance, so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so, I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing, whose hideous, hollow breathing I half fancied I could hear. Nearly mad, I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close, when in one cataclysmic second of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident, my fingers touched the rotting outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek, 
but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees, and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized, most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness, and that balm is Nepenthe. In the supreme horror of that second, I forgot what had horrified me, and the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream, I fled from that haunted and accursed pile, and ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble and went down the steps, I found the stone trap door immovable. But I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nephrin Ka in the sealed and unknown valley of Hadath by the Nile. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety save the unnamed feasts of Netocris beneath the great pyramid. Yet in my new wilderness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness and alienage. For although Nepenthe has calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. If you're still craving some weird horror from the man himself, go check out the Drabblecast B-Sides feed. As a bonus this week, and in response to listener requests when we called for suggestions, we produced Lovecraft's story Narlathotep as well. Should be up later in the week. If you're not yet subscribed to our sporadically updated sister podcast, Drabblecast B-Sides, go to our website, drabblecast.org, look at the top of the page, click the B-Sides link, and push subscribe. I update it every month or so with stories off the beaten path and content that I think would entertain. And hey, while you're at our site, drabblecast.org, why not click a donate button, flush some fuel into the system, help the show keep going strong. We rely on your generous support to do this mess every week. Don't be a mooch, help a brother out. Just like this week's kick-ass donor of the week, Jamie Homer. Jamie says he stumbled across the Drabblecast at episode 150 while searching on his iPod for decent Lovecraft podcasts, and ours somehow showed up. He's 31 and lives in the south coast of England in Poole with his fiancée Dawn and his bearded dragon Pamzilla. 
He's a graphic designer, and aside from the day job, he tries to keep his mind active with his own freelance work, which can be seen at circleof10.co.uk. But his main passion, he says, is collecting H.P. Lovecraft paraphernalia, films from all over the world, about 200 rare comics, but mainly he collects first edition, first printing old paperbacks of stories. The trophies in his collection are a copy of a 1937 Weird Tales, which has the story, the picture on the wall, and the armed services edition of the Dunwich Horror from 1939. Groovy. Thanks for making our mouths water, Jamie. And more importantly, thanks for helping the show out. We couldn't do it without you. So hey, let's get to this week's 100-character TwitFix story winner, the PMS Avenger, with this little guy. The flyer he gave me said, protect our borders. But when I brought my shotgun to the fiction section, they kicked me out. Arizona's Bill 1070 is just the beginning, huh? Hey, special thanks to this week's episode artist, Bo Kyer. Bo wants to thank anyone who purchased one of his art prints. He's down to about 20, still available at bowkire.com, and they're pretty freaking rad. I suggest you take a look. He's also working on something big for mega beast aficionados. Beastionados? News and details about season four of the upcoming Super Animal Deathmatch coming soon. He says he hopes to see you all at DragonCon 2010 next month. He'll be part of the Drabblecast presence. Oh yeah, DragonCon, that's coming up. Labor Day weekend. We're heading down there. We made the finals for Best Speculative Fiction Magazine, the Parsec Awards. So we're gonna go crash that ceremony for better or worse. Thanks to all who nominated us, that's quite an honor. So yeah, shoot us an email if you're going to DragonCon and want to meet up. We'll be giving out t-shirts, CDs, all sorts of good stuff. That's Drabblecast at Yahoo.com. Alright, we'll see you next week, weirdos. Remember that the Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that most demoniacal of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Unbelievable.